The Accutron Show. Accutron. It's not a timepiece. It's a conversation piece. With your host, Bill McCuddy, and contributors, Scott Alexander and David Graver. If you really want to innovate in mechanical watch making, it's actually really tough to do. Watches have been around in one form or another for 500 years. The voice you heard at the top of the show was today's guest, author and editor-in-chief at Houdinki, Jack Forrester, here to talk about print media in the digital age, from Houdinki magazine to the new book with Asseline, and why heritage-inspired and archival watch designs are still the biggest trend going. Did you know that? I didn't. Up first, it's me, Bill McCuddy, along with culture writer Scott Alexander and editor David Graver. We're going to discuss where is print media heading? Is it still around? All that and more on this episode of The Accutron Show. Stay tuned. Is there anything left today in print media? I get the New York Times. I get uh, a I couple still get, of magazines. I still subscribe to about five magazines. Do you really? Yeah, New Yorker, Esquire, Rolling Stone, um, Wired. You know? uh, I also get the New Yorker, and I also pick up anytime I have a print story out. I will buy that magazine and well, keep it forever. But let me ask you <laughs> so this: will my Well, keep me, it forever—that's the key. How difficult is it these days? And we're in Manhattan, but almost anywhere in the country to find a newsstand. That's a really good question. I mean, well, they used to be every magazines for years, even tobacco stores and cigar play. They all had magazines. There was an incredible always- newsstand on 11th Street and Sixth Avenue in the in the West Village. That was when I first moved to New York. It was just the mecca. They had everything. It was this dense, little, tight, packed little place, and you could go in there and truly browse and find magazines you never knew existed. Los was- Angeles had those enormous ones over in the Valley or in certain parts sure. of, of Beverly Hills that were almost a city block long. And you're right. You'd see magazines you'd never heard of before. And 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 you'd get them. you just kind of go, oh, it's three you bucks. Need Great. This. Boom, you know? boom, boom. Bowery yeah. Magazine still offers a little bit of that. You walk in and you're surprised at what's out there. I guess the other thing is if I'm flying coast to coast and I'm in the airport, I go into a Hudson News and some eye candy. I'll that's just pay last, two or three things. That's the last bastion is airports. But I mean, that's those newsstands are where I fell in love with magazines as a medium with this way of, uh, juxtaposing pictures with headlines, with text and great writing and all this other stuff. I was like, this is the medium I, I want to work in. It was really the medium that brought me into writing. There's still there's still a reason for magazines to exist in print form. When I pick up an issue of Wired, it's thinner than it used to be, but they're still delivering it's a brochure. They're still delivering an aesthetic experience. That the covers are still great every time. New Yorkers covers are still great every time. I love holding that stippled uh print stock they have on the right. cover of Wired magazine. It is truly a, a But you're feel. talking about the ones that are still around. Like what's missing? What do you when you go to a newsstand, I miss Premiere. There's no Premiere yeah, magazine Premier's anymore. Gone. Entertainment Weekly, ironically, is now a monthly. <laughs> I mean, it's sad, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, I miss none of those things. I'm glad that I have my New Yorker and I love my New Yorker experience. That's about the that's my print time each week. But there was it, something about sitting down with a new magazine and having it that half hour to 40 minutes. I feel like I, I don't – what it does is I don't take that moment. It's the same reason people used to smoke. It's not so much to get the nicotine. It is a little bit. But like you smoke to get a seven to ten minute break. And that's what magazines really gave you. You sit down. You go into this other realm where you slow down. You read headlines. You spend some time looking at pictures. It's a it's a different gear to put your brain. Uh, whereas in. the online reading experience, you're interrupted every f- fifteen seconds from a notification. Right, you're on <laughs> texting disruption. you. You've got an Instagram like all you want to do is finish one seven hundred word article. 
This is why I want to wear said that. Right. You don't find it more satisfying to sit with something that is in your lap and it's a, a personal experience. It's, I find you're not going to be interrupted in the same way. You wear a watch to know what time it is instead of looking at your phone. You're not going to be interrupted. Uh, I don't wear a watch to tell the time. I wear a watch because I like the aesthetic of the watch and what it says about my personality. David Graver reminds us every week <laughs> that he's younger than we are. <laughs> uh, I know I've told Thank you this goodness. before, but my theory about the New York Times is that it will be all digital for six days a week and you will still get in a hermetically sealed plastic bag the Sunday paper. Yeah, you can have my Sunday Times when you pry it for my cold dead hands. <laughs> Do you think you have somewhere in your house everything that's ever been printed with your name on it? <laughs> I have most of it. Yeah. Yeah, in, in physical form. The old details, the old home office computing. That was the first place that published None of print. the X's got half of them and, and <laughs> walked out with them. Cool Here's half my Playboys, honey. Have fun. <laughs> Cool Hunting is a digitally native publication, and people still come up to us and say, how can we read you in print? And it, it, it's not something that we've ever computer. been interested do in you, exploring. What about an annual, though? Why? Why would we do yeah, that? Because it's a, it basically becomes a coffee table book. It becomes like the 2010 annual. What was cool in 2010? It's a document. It's I'd like rather do a coffee table books. book for our 20th anniversary. That would be a great idea. But th the fact is, we've spent so long building a digital audience. Why would we want to go ahead and try and make a print audience out of our digital what audience? You do is, what you do is you make it a something that is profitable in and of itself. So that it costs 60 bucks, right? You guys every, are, every issue that sells makes 20 bucks, right? So there's no loss. Anymore? I mean, it's I mean, the profit margins are crazy thin on books right now, right? I mean, You sell magazines. it as a big coffee table book for 60 bucks. Well, Get well, Asseline to do it. This is all apropos <laughs> of our guest today because he has written a book, remember books? And he is uh, from a digital background. The uh, Houdinki is now, if you've never heard of it, came out of nowhere a few years ago to become the premier source for watch nerd information. And Jack uh, Forrester, who will be our guest in a few moments, is uh, the editor-in-chief and uh, will explain to us why they're going to go kind of, already have, a little bit backwards. I'll call it sideways. Well, I wouldn't call it backwards. It's just going from digital to print. Correct, it's really which remarkable. is almost in, unheard of. In a very I mean, collectible fashion. You just right. heard David say Cool Hunting wouldn't consider doing a magazine. Houdinki has decided to to publish one, and we're going to find out why. We're also going to hear about the history of the Accutron watch. And, and David's going to tell Jack why he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's, they're an authority, and they're, they tend to cover everyone, and they let, every, they let you know everything that's going on in the watch world. We tend to be about, this is what's brand new, and by the time a print issue gets out, it's not new anymore. That's why it's a review of the year. Yeah. See, what you're saying. I'm available pitching. as your business right. manager, you know, David. Even though Switzerland moves slow, the watch world does move fast. And there are so many releases each week that we could be discussing and talking about and gathering information on. And I think readers are now getting everything online anyway. I mean, there's a respect for it didn't used to be that way, but some of the best writing is obviously happening uh, on your computer. And nobody waits for magazines anymore. And it's amazing the caliber of writing. There's obviously a lot of like low level shoveling of, of cruddy content around, but I'm actually amazed by these columnists who work for these various websites. Uh, where they are able to put out one or even two columns a day of high-quality, high right. really interesting information synthesized from different news sources. It's, it's not, kind of an amazing Not time. the 10 reasons your elbow hurts. You won't believe number seven. Click now. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or the times, you know, I'm from an era where we would all slave to make 120 pages in 30 days. 
Right. You know, right. like right. we had time to to work on this stuff, and, yeah. and it would be months. Every issue is three or four months in the making. So. What's interesting, though, the headline here is that they are a huge digital presence, as is Cool Hunting, and they've decided to put out a magazine. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a book called Accutron, Space Age to Digital Age, because uh, by coincidence, this is the Accutron show. Uh, and we're going to learn about the relaunch of that uh, watch, whether he thinks that's going to be successful, what happened to the old one, and uh, a little bit about uh, an interesting story, I think, about where the Accutron watch in its history has been, traveled around the world and maybe didn't get the kind of press that uh, the Omega Moon watch did, for example, but deserves in its own right some accolades. Some if anyone book, knows, uh, it's Jack. He's He's been down this rabbit hole. He's the Yoda <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> of wristwatches, and he will give us uh, a lesson. He's going to school us when we return after this. The world runs on Accutron time. Accutron watches since 1960 from New York City to around the world. Jack Forrester is uh, the editor-in-chief and big uh, muckety-muck at uh, at Houdinki. And I guess anybody listening, uh, let's sort of explain what Houdinki is and how it came out of nowhere to be the uh, prestigious juggernaut that it is today. Sure. Um, well, it was kind of a long, slow burn, actually. Uh, the, site, the site was actually started as a desk side project by Ben Clymer back in 2008, uh, he was uh, working as a project manager at UBS, and the financial crisis hit, and his uh, boss basically said to him, well, listen, you can come in, but I don't have anything uh, for you to do, so just sit at your desk and look busy. <laughs> we have that job now, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, he was a watch enthusiast already. So he started a uh, you know quite simple blog that was basically just designed to uh, nourish his own enthusiasm for watches and the enthusiasm of uh, like-minded folks. Did he call it Hodinky back then? He did, actually. From the very first, uh, there were, you know, watch media, typically, the names of magazines and websites are some sort of pun on watch or time or, you know, or some such thing. And he didn't want to do that, so uh, he spent about 20 minutes Googling what the word for wristwatch was in various languages, and it turns out that in Czech, uh, the word for wristwatch is hodinky. <laughs> well, uh, that's the, the least wristwatch-sounding <laughs> Got it. <laughs> and of course, some of the world's some of the world's greatest watches come from Czechoslovakia, so it made complete sense. <laughs> I mean, the country actually it has no history at all in wristwatches, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, some of the some of the most important uh, European clocks were actually made in Czechoslovakia. There's oh, really? An astronomical clock in, yeah, there's an astronomical clock in Prague from the 1400s. That's one of the best preserved in Europe. So yeah, that's how it got started, and uh, you know, it's it's built from there. And uh, five years ago, 2015, was when I joined the company. And at that point, there was a major capital influx. And, uh, you know, we had uh, really fantastic resources. And I had been editor-in-chief of Revolution USA, which is a luxury watch magazine. And I had been in online media before, had, uh, with an impeccable sense of timing, uh, went um, into print in 2000, uh, 2006. Mm, <laughs> yes, timing is everything. And I finally got back online in 2015. And it's been, uh, it's been pretty steady growth ever since. Um, you know, it's. Uh, I think we're now the most widely read English language watch uh, publication online or not by a considerable margin. Um, there's an e-commerce branch. Um, it's uh, a thriving organization in just about every respect. Even you know, even today, even under the circumstances under which we're working, we there were 
five people in the office when I started, and we have close to 60 staff now. Wow. Jack, wow. how do you go from being such an authority on the internet in the age of digital content to releasing a print publication? You know, I think that it's actually much easier to do it that way than the other way around. Um, the Hadinki Magazine, which publishes uh, once every six months, is uh, it's a way of sort of um, getting our brand out there, a way of getting our um, editorial products out there to people who would not necessarily be exposed to them otherwise. Um, and, you know, since we had an established audience already, we've found pretty uh, decent success, both in terms of advertising and in terms of readership with the magazine. Um, it's, and I think it's demonstrably harder to go the other way. I mean, if you have uh, built a huge successful base of readers of a print product, um, there are very, very few cases in which that easily and seamlessly translates into a large online audience. It can, but it takes a lot of work to negotiate uh, that territory. I mean, I think The Atlantic has done it well. The New York Times, uh, Times of London is a uh, the Sunday Times, excuse me, is, uh, of London is a huge anomaly in that respect. Uh, they still have a gigantic uh, you know print reader base. Um, maybe because the Brits are traditionalists, uh, at least to a certain extent, when it comes to media consumption. You know, God forbid you should uh, read the Sunday paper. Uh, well, it's an artifact in the same way that you're talking about sort of artifact culture. You're talking about about watches. They're these totemic sort of pieces, and and each magazine, if you really put that kind of time and design into it, a newspaper is a very different aesthetic. Uh, object. Nobody's you know? putting a newspaper on their bookshelf, for example. That's right. But I imagine that this magazine right. of yours may find its way to the devotee's den. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's certainly what we're hoping. I mean, uh, it's uh, just from a sort of a ego standpoint. That's what that's what I'd like to think happens to and it. They're miniature coffee uh, table think, books. Yeah, they're yeah, miniature exactly. coffee table books. Right, right. And uh, you know, I do think that there is an analogy to the wristwatch. Uh, you know, there's the same sense of being part of an analog rather than a digital culture. Um, you know, and for the magazine specifically, uh, there's the same sense of uh, creating a kind of analog project with a digital base of support. Um, but the, the fundamental experience is an analog one, just as wristwatches. Well, it seems like a strange step sideways, let's say, uh, for someone who's made such a presence in the electronic world. But you have such a devoted following that I'm not surprised at all that the magazines are becoming sort of coveted. We can hope the same is going to happen for a new book that you're involved with uh, about Accutron, Space Age to Digital Age. Tell me about uh, how that uh, came forth and, and what was the most surprising thing to you about the Accutron brand? Well, answer your first question first. The book basically came about um, because I had heard, you know, sort of through the grapevine that the Accutron brand was being relaunched. And uh, I'm actually a huge fan of the original uh, tuning fork movement Accutron, so I took the news with tremendous excitement. And uh, in the course of figuring out ways to cover uh, the, the evolution of the new technology from an editorial perspective, uh, you know, I got into a lot of conversations with the folks at Bulova and uh, folks at its parent company, Citizen, uh, who were really producing the engineering solutions necessary for the new Accutron. And they, they seem to have said to themselves, uh, gee, this guy, uh, you know, he kind of gets it. Uh, he's a he's a genuine fan of the brand. He's a genuine fan of the history of the brand. He seems to have a real passion for it. And uh, we would love to produce something that really talks about the history of this wonderful piece of American history, of American technological history. Uh, let's ask him to do a book. And so they did. And, uh, the, you know, the, the Actron book was the result. And uh, I'm actually quite proud of it. I think it's a pretty decent uh, technical and uh, sort of sociological history of the Accutron uh, past, present, and future, and uh, just great, great fun to research. Um, the, you know, the present-day company has done a tremendous job 
in terms of gathering uh, archival material together. Um, they have uh, online archives, which they put at my disposal, which were tremendously, tremendously helpful in putting this uh, putting this thing together. So, you know, for me, it was a chance to take my natural inclination to do deep dives on um, you know, relatively narrow subjects and, you know, just put that to work. What do you think was the most surprising thing you came across uh, in all that research? Well, you know, I'd always known that the Accutron was uh, a sort of a technical marvel. Um, as far as vintage Accutrons were concerned, I was actually not aware how extensively they were uh, used in uh, things like uh, cutting-edge aviation and manned spaceflight. So just as a for instance, um, there was a hypersonic rocket plane program called the X-15, which was developed uh, pretty much parallel to the uh, Gemini and Apollo programs. And those guys... Um, you know, they got astronaut swings because those aircraft actually went into space um, uh, at their maximum altitude. And uh, the issue watch for the X-15 rocket plane pilots was uh, the Accutron astronaut. Uh, another wonderful example, I think, is um, the A-12 and SR-71 spy plane programs. So these were jet aircraft made as reconnaissance aircraft. You guys probably know the story in Rough Outline. Uh, Gary Powers got shot down in a U-2 reconnaissance plane over the Soviet Union in the early 1950s. And the U.S. Air Force said, well, listen, we need something that's, uh, you know, these damned Soviet surface-to-air missiles, they can reach up as high as the, uh, as the U-2 can fly. So altitude alone is not the solution. We need something that can simply outrun the darn things. Hmm. And the result was a project was the A-12, which became the SR-71 Blackbird. And uh, that aircraft was a technical miracle. It was the first all-titanium aircraft. Uh, it literally went faster than a rifle bullet. Um, the skin of the aircraft would get so hot from friction that its fuel actually had to be used as a coolant. And, uh, you know, before takeoff, sitting on the runway, it was actually sweating jet fuel onto its skin. Uh, <laughs> wow. Where is no this smoking. movie? Where is this movie? <laughs> this is like great. You're pitching a screenplay. Don't smoke by the Blackbird. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, the, actually, uh, the jet fuel was specially formulated for that particular aircraft, and uh, it had to be ignited by what was basically a small bomb in the tailpipe of the airplane. And uh, it was uh, otherwise very difficult to set off. In fact, there's a couple of stories of uh, flight engineers tossing lit cigarettes into tanks of this fuel uh, to demonstrate that, in fact, it would not go off oh. unless, uh, you, know, you wanted it to. So the cockpits would get uh, super, super hot in, uh, you know, 140-degree-plus heat. A wristwatch out the, on the outside of the pilot's flight suit not keep good times, uh, but uh, because of some of the peculiarities of its construction, uh, the Accutron, uh, the tuning fork Accutron watch was actually capable of tolerating the extreme operating temperatures found in the cockpit of the Blackbird. And, uh, you know, in all of the years that it operated, it was never shot down. Um, a couple of times, uh, you know, various operators uh, took shots at the aircraft with surface-to-air missiles, and, uh, you know, it just outran them. And it remains uh, to this day, 50 years plus later, the fastest manned aircraft ever built by a considerable margin. Just one of the great, I'm just going to say one of the great stories that's in the book. And I guess as you're describing the Accutron history, I'm wondering how this has been sort of put in the back burner uh, when you think about like the Omega Moon Watch, for example, that everybody knows about that watch. Well, I think it's a question of, uh, you know, having been a little bit in the wrong place at the wrong time. The, uh, the Accutron was actually, um, I'm, as my recollection is that it was actually discussed by NASA as an issue watch for Gemini and Apollo, but the problem is the, um, the spec for the program required a chronograph wristwatch. You know, that's a wristwatch with a stopwatch built into it. Right. For various reasons, there, were, there never was an Accutron uh, chronograph per se. In other respects, it would actually have been a wonderful watch to have. 
uh, along in manned space flight. But it certainly served, you know, in other ways in the X-15 program and the A-12 and SR-71 programs. You know, it made you know, it was it was around for some of really history-making events, and I think that the Speedmaster probably has benefited from. Uh, well, I mean, to be fair, um, you know, it was chosen by NASA. It did go to the moon. Uh, it's been used in manned space like you know consistently ever since uh, ever since the Gemini program, and it's technology that has persisted in manned space flight. Partly because it has, uh, you know, to this day, the Speedmaster is the only watch has ever been approved for use on spacesuits outside spacecraft and outside the space station. And it's because, you know, quartz watches, especially LCD watches, they, they will not work when exposed to temperature extremes. And it's a bit sad for the Akatron. It never really got a chance to sort of test itself in that environment because it would have been a fantastic watch. The other thing that sort of told against the Akatron uh, was that, you know, it was only around for about 10 years, the original tuning fork Accutron. And it came in at a very interesting time. Uh, so it appeared at a time when, uh, you know, you're talking about 1960 was the year that uh, the first tuning fork Accutrons came out. And this was a time when tremendous efforts were being made to uh, shrink quartz timekeeping technology and reduce its power consumption so that it could be used on a wristwatch. But that was still, you know, in 1960, that was still basically a decade plus off. And electronic watches were all the rage, but people couldn't figure out how to produce one that was reliable enough and uh, had low enough power consumption to be practical. So uh, Hamilton, for instance, Elgin, Lip, these three companies attempted to make electronic wristwatches that kept their mechanisms going. With It was basically the equivalent of a tiny pendulum inside uh, what in a conventional watch is called a balance wheel. And it was kept going by magnetic impulses delivered by uh, a dry cell. But uh, power was, was a, a huge, huge issue. Uh, the batteries would last just a few months and then would need to be switched. Uh, the mechanisms were very delicate. It was uh, If you didn't know what you're doing, it was easy to destroy them by accident, just doing a battery change. And they were big, too, weren't they? The cases were large. They were, they were, they were super huge watches. I don't think size was necessarily, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, they certainly could not compete with, uh, you know, the true extra fit and extra flat you know, dress watches, which were so in vogue during the late 1950s and early 1960s. So they were a bit clunky. Um, but, you know, they were just not terribly, terribly reliable. And then, you know, Hamilton made matters worse for itself by actually rushing one into production before it was quite ready. And they had huge reliability problems. First six, first six months, it was return after return after return after return. And, and when the when the Accutron came out, when the tuning fork movements came out, these were ready to go right out of the box. You got a year plus um, out of the battery, which... At the time, I mean, it was fantastic technology. It was the first true electronic wristwatch in that it had an actual electronic circuit in it, a special transistor that had been constructed especially for the project. Um, and uh, it was uh, significantly more accurate than a mechanical watch. So, you know, you imagine something like this comes out in 1960, and it is the best thing since sliced bread in watchmaking. It's much more uh, much more accurate than a conventional mechanical watch. Um, Jack, was that, was that what... What motivated all of this? A quest for accuracy, a quest for precision? Because is that is that still a value in watch collectors today? I don't think people are looking at accuracy as um, a defining factor. You know, um, I mean, first of all, yes, absolutely, that was what uh, that was what was being sought. Um, you know, a higher degree of accuracy was definitely a selling point. Um, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s, when you know quartz timekeeping technology or equivalent was not ubiquitously available as it is today having an accurate watch, you know, meant a lot. And it was definitely a selling point. And that's absolutely what motivated the development of the tuning fork Accutrons. Now, if you ask, does it matter today? Um, that's a very interesting question. It depends on who you ask. And it depends on which company you look at. You look at uh, Rolex, for example. Um, they have an internal specification for all of their mechanical watches. 
which is considerably better than uh, the internationally agreed upon chronometer standards. So all of their watches before they leave the factory must be rated to run within uh, plus two seconds or minus two seconds a day. Uh, Omega has a similar uh, you know, spec for accuracy for its watches. Both of those companies use extremely high-tech uh, micromechanical manufacturing techniques in order to ensure uh, reliability and accuracy over their entire product range and consistently. Um, you know, so these are companies that are making half a million to a million watches a year, and there's there's no room for error. You know, they want somebody to be able to pick up one of their watches, put them on, and have them basically keep time as nearly uh, uh, as they can. You know, to a quartz level of accuracy, uh, uh, maybe even better. Um, I mean, a um, uh, a modern Rolex or Omega that's that's uh, uh, tuned properly is perfectly capable of uh, uh, beating a, uh, an inexpensive quartz watch in terms of accuracy. And it's, um, you know, to a lot of people, it's a much more pleasant experience to wear, obviously, because these two companies are still doing extremely well. So, uh, you know, you get the idea. It's uh, it's not necessarily something that is the first thing in people's minds, but um, I think most modern watch companies that produce at volume know that they're dealing with a client base who, at this point, have had their expectations for timekeeping accuracy set by quartz watches, have had their expectations of timekeeping accuracy set by the accuracy of time they can get off their suit. Yes, but much more but much more appreciated the handmade timepiece that represented the upper end of, let's say, Rolex or Paddock or any of the, Audemars, any of the, any of the great lines. That's right. But now we've got a new market coming, I think, for people wearing mechanical watches and quartz watches uh, with the apocalypse and the offing. I think uh, the phones are going to stop working. We're, we're and, counting down yeah. the days, and we want accuracy. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely seeing a, a lot more comments in the Dickey articles that say things like, well, you know, a mechanical watch, uh, when the electromagnetic pulse from the big one. <laughs> exactly. Every computer for 500 kilometers around, my, 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 my Rolex is going is to keep on ticking. I'll still know what time. I'll still make my meeting. The Milgauss will be the most popular watch on the planet. Hey, uh, just a quick question about uh, the 60th anniversary now of Accutron and and the book coming out for that. Why, in your opinion or in the book, did the brand go away? And how do you think it'll succeed uh, in a relaunch this year? Well, the brand was really a victim of uh, uh, the, the Accutron brand really meant the tuning fork watch. And uh, once quartz timepieces started to flood the market, you know, this started in 1969 with Seiko, who released the world's first commercial quartz watch on Christmas Day, 1969, Japan only, a gold case, and it cost as much as a new car. <laughs> but, uh, you know, things did not stay that way. And, uh, you know, by the mid-1970s, we had first LED watches, then LCD watches, and they got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And the Accutron, uh, the original tuning fork Accutron, was a bit of a craft object. It was difficult to manufacture, extremely high-precision micromechanics. And as accurate as it was, it was not as accurate as a quartz watch. And its battery consumption was, you know, the battery consumption for quartz watches got better and better and better, reaching up to 10 years eventually. So a tuning fork watch that required a battery change once a year which did not keep time as well. It's definitely better than a mechanical, but it didn't keep time as well as a quartz watch in any event. Uh, it was, you know, it was just no longer able to compete. And they tried for a while to keep the brand alive by producing what are called Accu quartz watches. Now these are these are quite interesting. They had a quartz crystal, quartz timing package, uh, but they used a tuning fork mechanism in order to move the hands. So it was in a way the best of both worlds and the worst of both worlds. They were they were complicated watches. Uh, really high energy consumption. I mean, I find them fascinating 
uh, absolutely fascinating as just sort of artifacts of the evolution of portable timekeeping. But they're very cool to look at. Let's just make, oh, yeah. let's not let the moment pass. I think they're very cool looking watches, especially the space views and the, the ones that you know we can see. Uh, the inner workings. Anything that's been in a hypersonic rocket plane is okay by me. <laughs> that's, that's the way I feel. X15 about it. to also, my you know, wrist to will do. Point. Yeah, sorry. Also, you know, to your point, Bill, uh, they are super, super cool looking. Uh, a Space View is uh, one of the coolest looking watches I think uh, that, that any company has ever made. Um, do you think this is an example of retrofuturistic design or retrofuturism? Are you referring now to the uh, to the new Accutrons or to the uh, to the Vogue for the vintage one? Honestly, let's let's address both. Well, I think that uh, in the case of the collectability of vintage Accutrons, especially the Space Views, for sure, uh, it is uh, uh, definitely I think a manifestation of retrofuturism. You know, when these watches came out and when they were flourishing, 1960 to 1970, my gosh, you know, we really thought. Uh, I mean. I grew up during the Apollo era, and, you know, we thought that, uh, you know, moon bases were coming next, uh, Mars colonies were coming next. <laughs> I expected giant, uh, you know, tourist-shaped space stations a la 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, 2020 was going to be really cool back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. I mean, okay, we didn't get we didn't get any of that stuff. Or, you know, I never got my jetpack. And uh, You didn't get your jetpack? I got my jetpack. <laughs> no. <laughs> we had a dog named Astro, but that's about as close as it came, yeah. You know, what did we get by, cons uh, you know, for, 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 for consolation, we got uh, the internet and the ability to spread uh, toxic misinformation far and wide at the drop. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so to follow up uh, and put you a little on the spot, but you are the authority, A, with the book and B, uh, at Houdinki, uh, how do you think the new Accutron is going to do? I expect it to do very well, actually. It's a wonderful piece of technology, first of all, but I think that before you get to any of that, you look at this thing and it, it looks like nothing else on Earth. The uh, drive system has never been used before in a wristwatch. It was used occasionally in clockmaking, very occasionally, I believe. But the, uh, the drive system, which uh, uses uh, an electrostatic drive technology, uh, that's not something that anybody has ever put in a wristwatch before. And the aesthetics are, are really, really striking. The design definitely harkens back to the early space views. It's got the same retro-futuristic appeal. And to have something like that, which produces an experience of time and a sense of connection to a real period of hope and optimism, uh, you know, to a time when, when, when technology really was perceived as a wondrous thing rather than, uh, rather than uh, you know, as much an enemy as a friend, I think, is, uh, I think it's very powerful emotionally. I mean, uh, I fell in love with them the second I saw them. And it looks cool. <laughs> but, that's right in a word we are also in a time period where where consumers are very eager for reissued archival timepieces and Accutron's not alone in making that move no no absolutely not and uh, you know it's a tricky thing um there's definitely a sector of the watch buying public that basically just wants copy pastes of original designs um but there's also a segment of the watch buying public that wants designs that harken back to, you know, the glories of the past, but at the same time show that there's still a possibility for invention, sometimes even radical invention, um, in the present. We want uh, companies that are looking as much to the future as they are to the past. If a company's too mired in its glorious past, it starts to seem a little, um, just a little bit out of touch maybe with, uh, you know, with the present, with the here and now. And one of the things that I uh, really liked about the new Accutrons, the electrostatic drive Accutrons, is that they are so, so clearly connected to the history of you know, classic tuning fork Accutron design, but they're also completely new technology. You know, at the same, it's, uh, it's the best of the old, 
but also something really genuinely new. And uh, it's a chance to have, you know, the Accutron experience without some of the trouble that can go along with uh, having a vintage watch. The only issue with collecting vintage Accutrons is uh, really maintenance of parts. You know, so for instance, the, the tuning fork um, basically drives the hands of the watch. But and these tiny little vibrations have to be translated into a rotational motion. And this is achieved by what's essentially a microscopic uh, lever and gear system. Um, the teeth on the driving wheel are so small that they can they can only be seen with a microscope. And uh, if you are trying to work on one of these watches and you don't really, really know what you're doing, you will find that you have destroyed the mechanism. And then you're in a situation where it's increasingly hard to find spare parts. You have to deal with the fact that, um, you know, this is one of the things that I think that's held a lot of people back from collecting Accutrons who otherwise, otherwise might want to. Well, they were made for 1.35 volt mercury batteries. And uh, nobody makes mercury batteries anymore because of the toxicity issues. Um, you know, it's nasty stuff to work with. And it's, you know, you can't just throw it into a landfill. Uh, but uh, modern 1.55 volt uh, lithium batteries run the watches at too high a voltage. Uh, so they don't keep time well, and uh, you may eventually end up burning the coils out. So, you know, that's all the stuff that kind of goes along with wanting to collect a vintage Accutron, but with the newer ones, you actually don't have to worry about a battery at all. Um, they're powered in the same way that a, a mechanical automatic watch is powered. There's a rotor in the back, which uh, is actually connected to an electrostatic generator. One of the things that you get to see when you wear the watch is you get to see the uh, electrostatic generators under the dial doing their thing, as well as the electrostatic uh, motor. That is so cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just it's fascinating to look at. So there's an evolution is what you're saying. It's the old design, uh, but it's evolved into something as opposed to, let's say, the the new Breitling uh, Navitimer reissue of the 806, which is just basically a carbon copy of what they made uh, 50 years ago. Yeah, you know, which is fine. I mean, I think that it's uh, there's it's definitely not what's keeping the lights on at Breitling, but it's definitely it's something that they do. You know, obviously it's safe. Uh, you know, well, it's also it's a, it's 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 a talking point, and it's something that a certain that a certain segment of their um, uh, their collector base certainly want because it provides a sense of direct connection with the past. You know, I think that's one of the reasons that the Speedmaster has remained so popular. The Submariner, you know, these are watches that have changed relatively little um, in their design. Uh, you know, since you know, you look at the Submariner. That watch first came out in the 1950s, and unless you're a watch person, if you show so so no, excuse me, if you show somebody. A uh, Submariner from 1965, one from 1975, and one from 1985, 95, 2005. Right. They're basically going to all look alike. Right. But but this gets back to this idea of of safety, and it's uh, there's always this tension with companies when they've, they're 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 companies. They're there to make money, but the ones that really do amazing stuff are the ones that aren't playing it safe. The ones that are going out and doing something new, something different. One thing I've dinged Apple for for the last. 15, 20 years is, is they haven't innovated. After the iPhone, they didn't really innovate a whole lot. Um, Except for the power cord. But the iPhone was a huge innovation, you know, changing. fair enough. But like they just don't, they won't push. Right, exactly. That that cord is exploitive and very safe. And so I, I just, I always want to see these companies push the envelope, but then I guess there's a tension with like risk. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a question of being risk averse. It's partly, well, I mean, if you're talking about the Swiss, yeah, it's, there's probably a certain amount of risk averseness there. Uh, you guys know the old joke, when I die, uh, oh, when the end of the world comes, I want to be in Switzerland because everything ha there happens 10 years late. <laughs> yes, um, conservative. Yeah, I think there's a certain, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an inherently conservative country. It's an inherently conservative 
industry. And, you know, part of the problem is there's, if you really want to innovate in mechanical watchmaking, it's actually really tough to do. Watches have been around in one form or another for 500 years. A modern mechanical wristwatch uses an escapement that was first used in a watch in 1755. Um, we have had mainsprings since the 1500s. We have had uh, mainsprings powering gears with the kind of escapement that you have in modern wristwatches since 1755. And, you know, if you open up a modern mechanical watch, if you show the uh, the inside to a watchmaker like Breguet, for example, who was making watches in the late 1700s and early 1800s, there's nothing in there that he wouldn't recognize in principle. I think the, the miniaturization would shock him, the materials he wouldn't necessarily understand, but he'd understand how it works. You know, there would be no confusion mm-hmm. at all. Um, and, you know, for that reason, uh, making major technical innovations in watchmaking, you know, that's pretty much... Once, uh, you know, there was the tuning fork, uh, there was the invention of quartz timekeeping technology, and pretty much since then, uh, it's been a question of incremental improvement. You know, we have uh, quartz movements nowadays, quartz watch movements that can keep time incredibly well to within a few seconds a year, but they don't work in principle in uh, any way different from the first quartz watch that was introduced by Seiko in 1969. So. It's a, it's a slow, 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 slow path. So I think what you're saying, Jack, is the only way to get some innovation in your life is to get this new Accutron one. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the corner we've painted you into. <laughs> it, sounds, it certainly sounds like you don't think you can get it from Apple. No. <laughs> no. Although their new chips, the, the, the new Apple silicone they just announced is actually really, really impressive. It's the most interesting thing I think they've done in a long time, and it actually comes out of their phone technology. So I, I will give them props for this just very most recent Apple Silicon uh, initiative. There's a lot of – I actually wear an Apple Watch regularly, and uh, there's things about it that I enjoy very much. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a gadget head, and, uh, you know, I have been since I was a kid. I grew up during – the first era of real manned space flight. And, uh, you know, anything that uh, seems kind of you know, science fiction-y and futuristic, uh, I am a sucker for. And, uh, um, you know, as I said, I, I really, really dig the new Accutrons. I think that they're such a wonderful combination of the uh, best of the old from a design standpoint, intriguing new technology. Um, and I, I hope they do really well because I'm pretty... I was sort of emotionally invested in them being successful before writing the book, and now I'm really emotionally invested in them being successful uh, after writing the book and after having had a chance to spend some time with them. So, uh, you know, they have my blessing for whatever that's worth. Jack Forrester's from Houdinki. He wrote on the 60th anniversary of Accutron, Accutron, Space Age to the Digital Age, and he has been our guest today. Thank you so much for having me on the show, gentlemen. Thanks, Jack. Thanks. On behalf of Cool Hunting's David Graver and Bon Vivant Scott Alexander, I'm Bill McCuddy for The Accutron Show. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The Accutron Show. To hear all our shows, visit AccutronWatch.com. For upcoming guests as well as behind-the-scenes action, follow us on Instagram at AccutronWatch. From the 29th floor of the Empire State Building, until next time, Accutron time. Set your tuning forks. Thank you.